0: Hello everyone and welcome back to sidecar stories. My name is Sam and this is a weird week for me. Not for any particular reason, as much as it is just boy golly I am busy. Boy howdy golly, I am a busy lad right now. Yikeums! <laughs> I think this I think this week warrants a yikums. I do indeed. Hey gang, how are you doing by golly? It's good to see you all. I've missed you. Sander, Orly Rose, Missy, I see y'all Hogwarts Hippie, Vane. I see you, I see you gang over in Twitch. How do you do? Today, the plan is to forget all of the important notes that I have to give, such as uh, don't forget to go on over to Discord uh, and make sure that you are putting in your suggestions for the Flying Sidecar Next series. It's crazy that we've done three already. Um, Over on my podcast uh, uh, hosting system, um, basically I can divide things up into seasons, um, and if we go with each book being a season... This book, number three of Hunger Games, is the beginning of season. Can anybody guess? 15. Season 15 of Flying Sidecar. Um, Not to mention, you know, what has it been? Six or eight seasons of, AKA six to eight books of Vintage Sidecar. Um, I've got uh, a couple of other things up there as well. Um, Let's see we're in the midst of our second major season of um (laughs) uh, of side cannons it's going well it's going well sanders wondering when will the suggestion box close um it won't no it will close because i just want to get it out of there uh get it out of the way um it is going to close uh, i would say at the end of part one of this book here Um, And Hogwarts TV, these suggestions do not necessarily need to be public domain. Public domain is fantastic. Um, There are some great ones on that list. But, uh, no, it need not necessarily be so. Um, And the... uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, the the channel is going to be closed. The flying suggestion box is going to close. um, As of the end of part one of this book here that way we can be voting um at the uh i guess around about the beginning of part two um yeah so i'm gonna say that uh so this week um let's see part 1.2 uh next week part 1.3 which means that uh i would say it's gonna be closing down round about the 30th the 30th is when i'm going to uh uh get get our vote started. So, on that date or possibly the next day, just based on how my schedule tends to go. So you can anticipate it then, end of the month. You've got until the end of the month to so you get your suggestions in there uh and then we're going to be taking our vote and we'll be doing that for probably um probably about two weeks that vote will be open um, because it takes there is some delay between uh, the folks who see it live and then the folks who don't watch it here or on twitch and they wait for the um, the actual published version to come out so I want that one to be out for like about a week so probably about a two week voting period okay all right there we are folks let's talk a bit of review because we do have awesome reading to get did today Chapters 1, 2, and 3. A bit of review. Leading up to this point, Katniss Everdeen, um, a member of a a citizen of Panem, divided up into 12 districts, uh, has for 75 years now been holding the Hunger Games, and Katniss has been a participant in two at this point. Um, Members of the different districts are thrown together into an arena to fight, and now, Now we go off into our third book. In this third book, Katniss has been for a long time just talking about sort of rebelling against the capital, what that might mean, and now it's in full swing. At the end of the first book, she had a little small act of rebellion, um, just trying not to let the games really win, even though she was going to die. But she didn't die and she did really sort of get one over on the game makers. In book two, she has been thrust back into the arena, forced back into the arena um, to fight former victors of the games, Um, and, well, wouldn't you know it? At the end, rather than dying to keep Peta alive, she knocks a hole in the side of the arena, not really knowing fully what the plan is even, but doing so, She suddenly finds she's being picked up by a hovercraft and being flown off to District 13. Long thought to have been totally destroyed in the original war that sort of caused this Hunger Games system to exist in the first place. Now Katniss is living in District 13, and uh, in our first chapter from last week, um, Katniss went home to visit the Seam, to visit District 12. It's been totally bombed out. There's virtually nothing left. The buildings are destroyed, but not only that, many of the people there did not make it out alive. Around 800 people are left from District 12, and many of them, as we discover in Chapter 2, They are now living as uh, sort of refugees in District 13. They've been granted immediate citizenship there. Um, The the ones who are old enough to participate in the military are given the honorary title of soldier. This includes Katniss. And uh, as we start on into Chapter 3 from last week, we find that... District 13 wants something very specific from Katniss. They want Katniss to become the Mockingjay. This figure that sort of groups associated with them, like Plutarch Heavensby and uh, Haymitch, that these folks have kind of crafted over time, this image of the Mockingjay, this symbol of the Rebellion, they want Katniss to fully step up and, you know, put on the costumes and record the 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 propos and all this different stuff. Um, and Katniss realizing that this might be the one chance she has to make some make some deals about this. This might be her one point of power. She asks for protection for people that she loves, um, and that includes Peeta who has unfortunately made himself kind of an enemy of the resistance by going on to Pan Am television and saying he calls for a ceasefire. That is where we're at right now. And I hope you all will enjoy our next chapter. unwashed bodies. Stale urine and infection breaks through the cloud of antiseptic. The three figures are only just recognizable by their most striking fashion choices. Venia's gold facial tattoos, Flavius's orange corkscrew curls, Octavia's light evergreen skin, which now hangs too loosely as if her body were a slowly deflating balloon. On seeing me, Flavius and Octavia shrink back against the tiled walls like they're anticipating an attack, even though I have never hurt them. Unkind thoughts were my worst defense against them, and I kept those to myself, so why do they recoil? The guards ordering me out, but by the shuffling that follows I know Gale has somehow detained him. For answers I cross to Venia, who was always the strongest. I crouch down and take her icy hands, which clutch mine like vices. What happened, Feenya? I ask. What are you doing here? They took us from the capital, she says hoarsely. Putark enters behind me. What on earth is going on? Who took you? I press her. People, she says vaguely, the night that you broke out. We thought it might be comforting for you to have your regular team," Blutark says behind me. Sinna requested it. Sinner requested this,' I snarl at him, because if there's one thing I know, it's that Sinna would never have approved the abuse of these three, who he managed with gentleness and patience. Why are they being treated like criminals?' Uh, "'I honestly don't know.'" There's something in his voice that makes me believe him and the pallor on Fulvia's face confirms it. Plutarch turns to the guard, who's just appeared in the doorway with Gale right behind him. I was told only that they were being confined. Why are they being punished? For stealing food. We had to restrain them after an oh. altercation over some bread, says the guard. Venia's brows come together as if she's trying to make sense of it no one would tell us anything we were so hungry it was just one slice she took octavia begins to sob muffling the sound in her ragged tunic i think of how the first time i survived the arena octavia sneaked me a roll under the table because she couldn't bear my hunger i crawl across to her shaking form octavia i touch her and she flinches octavia It's going to be all right. I'll get you out here, okay?" "'This seems extreme,' says Plutarch. "'It's because they took a slice of bread,' asks Gale. "'There were repeated infractions leading up to that. They were warned. Still, they took more bread.' The guard pauses a moment as if puzzled by our density you can't take bread i can't get octavia to uncover her face but she lifts it slightly the shackles on her wrists shift down a few inches revealing raw sores beneath them i'm bringing you to my mother i address the guard unchain them the guard shakes his head it's not authorized unchain them now i yell This breaks his composure. Average citizens don't address him this way. I have no release orders, and you have no authority to- Do it on my authority, says Plutarch. We came to collect these three anyway. They're needed for special defense. I'll take full responsibility. The guard leaves to make a call. He returns with a set of keys. The preps have been forced into cramped body positions for so long that even once the shackles are removed they have trouble walking. Gale, Plutarch, and I have to help them. Flavius's foot catches on a metal grate over a circular opening in the floor and my stomach contracts when I think of why a room would need a drain. The stains of human misery must have been hosed off these white tiles. In the hospital I find my mother, the only one I trust to care for them. It takes her a minute to place the three, given their current condition, but already she wears a look of consternation. And I know it's not a result of seeing abused bodies, because they were her daily fare in District 12, but the realization that this sort of thing goes on in 13 as well. My mother was welcomed into the hospital, but she's viewed as more of a nurse than a doctor, despite her lifetime of healing. Still, no one interferes when she guides the trio into an examination room to assess their injuries. I plant myself on a bench in the hall outside the hospital entrance, waiting for her her verdict. She'll be able to read in their bodies the pain inflicted upon them. Gail sits next to me and puts an arm around my shoulder. She'll fix him up. I give a nod, wondering if he's thinking about his own brutal flogging back in Twelve. Plutarch and Fulvia take the bench across from us, but don't offer any comment on the state of my prep team. If they had no knowledge of this mistreatment, then what do they make of this move on President Coyne's part? I decide to help them out. I guess we've all been put on notice, I say. What? No, what do you mean? Says Fulvia. Punishing my prep team is a warning, I tell her. Not just me, but to you too. About who's really in control and what happens if she's not obeyed. If you had any delusions about having power, I'd let him go now. Apparently a capital pedigree's no protection here. Might even be a liability. There is no comparison between Plutarch, who masterminded the rebel breakout, and those three beauticians, says Fulvia icily. I shrug. If you say so, all of you. But what would happen if you got on Coin's bad side? My prep team was kidnapped. They can at least hope that one day they might return to the capital. Gail and I can live in the woods. But you? Where would you two run? Perhaps we're a little bit more necessary to the war effort than you give us credit for says Plutarch, unconcerned. Of course you are. Tributes were necessary to the games, too. Until they weren't. Then we were very disposable. Right, Plutarch? That ends the conversation. We wait in silence until my mother finds us. It'll be all right, she reports. No permanent physical injuries. Good. Splendid says Plutarch. How soon can they be put to work? Uh, Probably tomorrow, she answers. You'll have to expect some emotional instability after what they've been through. They were particularly ill-prepared coming from their life in the capital. Yeah, weren't we all, says Plutarch. Either because the prep team's incapacitated or I'm too on edge, Plutarch releases me from mockingjay duties for the rest of the day. Gale and I head down to lunch, where we're served bean and onion stew, a thick slice of bread, and a cup of water. After Vinya's story, the bread sticks in my throat, so I slide the rest of it onto Gale's tray. Neither of us speaks much during lunch, but when our bowls are clean, Gale pulls up his sleeve, revealing his schedule. We've got training next. I tug up my sleeve and hold my arm next to his. Me too. I remember that training equals hunting now. My eagerness to escape into the woods, if only for two hours, overrides my current concerns. An immersion into greenery and sunlight will surely help me sort out my thoughts. Once off the main corridors, Gale and I race like schoolchildren for the armory, and by the time we arrive, I'm breathless and dizzy. A reminder that I'm not fully recovered. The guards provide our old weapons, as well as knives and a burlap sack that's meant for a game bag. I tolerate having the tracker clamped to my ankle try to look as if I'm listening when they explain how to use the handheld communicator the only thing that sticks in my head is that it has a clock and we must be back inside 13 by the designated hour or our hunting privileges will be revoked this is one rule I think I will make an effort to abide we go outside into the large fenced in training area beside the woods guards open the well-oiled gates without comment we would be hard pressed to get past this fence on our own, 30 feet high and always buzzing with the electricity, topped with razor sharp curls of steel. We move through the woods until the view of the fence has been obscured. In a small clearing, we pause and drop back our heads to bask in the sunlight. I turn in a circle, my arms extended at my sides, revolving slowly so as not to set the world spinning. The lack of rain I saw in Twelve has damaged the plants here as well, leaving some with brittle leaves, building a crunchy carpet under our feet. We take off our shoes. Mine don't fit right anyway, since in the spirit of waste-not-want-not that rules thirteen, I was issued a pair someone had outgrown. Apparently, one of us walks funny because they're broken in all wrong. We hunt like in the old days, silent, needing no words to communicate, Because here in the woods, we move as two parts of one being. Anticipating each other's movements, watching each other's backs. How long has it been? Eight months? Nine? Since we had this freedom? It's not exactly the same, given all that's happened, and the trackers on our ankles, and the fact that I have to rest so often. But it's about as close to happiness as I think I can currently get. The animals here are not nearly suspicious enough. That extra moment it takes to place our unfamiliar scent means their death. In an hour and a half, we've got a mixed dozen. Rabbits, squirrels, and turkeys. And decide to knock off and spend the remaining time by a pond that must be fed by an underground spring. Since the water is cool and sweet. When Gale offers to clean the game, I don't object. I stick a few mint leaves on my tongue, close my eyes lean back against a rock soaking in the sounds letting the scorching afternoon sun burn my skin almost at peace until Gale's voice interrupts me Katniss why do you care so much about your prep team I open my eyes to see if he's joking but he's frowning down at the rabbit he's skinning why shouldn't I Uh, let's see "'Cause they've spent the last year prettying you up for the slaughter,' he suggests. "'It's more complicated than that. "'I know them. They're not evil or cruel. "'They're not even smart. Hurting them, it's like hurting children. "'They don't see... I I mean, they don't know... "'I get knotted up in my words. They don't know what, Katniss. "'That tributes, who are the actual children involved here, not your trio of freaks are forced to fight to the death that you were going to the arena for people's amusement was that a big secret in the capital no but they didn't view it the way that we do they're raised on it and are you actually defending them he slips the skin from the rabbit in one quick move that stings because in fact I am and it's ridiculous I struggle to find a logical position. I guess I'm defending anyone who's treated like that for stealing a slice of bread. Maybe it reminds me too much of what happened to you over a Turkey. Still, he's right. It does seem strange, my level of concern over the prep team. I should hate them and want to see them strung up, but they're so clueless and they belong to Sina and he was on my side, right? "'I'm not looking for a fight,' Gail says. "'But I don't think Coyne was sending you some big message by punishing them for breaking the rules here. "'She probably thought you would see it as a favor." "'He stuffs the rabbit into the sack and rises. "'We better get going if we want to make it back on time.' "'I ignore his offer of a hand up and get to my feet unsteadily. "'Fine.' "'Neither of us talks on the way back.' But once we're inside the gate, I think of something else. During the quarter quell, Octavia and Flavius had to quit because they couldn't stop crying over me going back in. And Venia could barely say goodbye. I'll try to keep that in mind as they remake you, says Gail. Do, I say. We hand the meat over to Greasy's say in the kitchen. She likes District 13 well enough, even though she thinks the cooks are somewhat lacking in imagination. But a woman who came up with a palatable wild dog and rhubarb stew is bound to feel as if her hands are tied here. Exhausted from hunting and my lack of sleep, I go back to my compartment and find it stripped bare, only to remember we've been moved because of Buttercup. I make my way to the top floor and find Compartment E. It looks exactly like Compartment 307, except for the window. Two feet wide, eight inches tall, centered at the top of the outside wall. There's a heavy metal plate that fastens over it, but right now it's propped open, and a certain cat is nowhere to be seen. I stretch out of my bed, and a shaft of afternoon sunlight plays on my face. The next thing I know, my sister is waking me for 1800. Reflection. Prim tells me they've been announcing the assembly since lunch. The entire population, except those needed for essential jobs, is required to attend. We follow directions to the collective, a huge room that can easily hold the thousands who show up. You can tell it was built for a larger gathering, and perhaps it held one before the pox epidemic. Prim quietly points out the widespread fallout from that disaster. The pox scars on people's bodies, the slightly disfigured children. "'I've suffered a lot here,' she says. "'After this morning, I'm in no mood to feel sorry for Thirteen. "'No more than we did in twelve, I say. "'I see my mother lead a group of mobile patients, "'still wearing their hospital nightgowns and robes. "'Finnick stands among them, looking dazed but gorgeous. "'In his hands he holds a thin piece of rope, "'less than a foot in length, "'too short for even him to fashion into a usable noose.' His fingers move rapidly, automatically tying and unraveling various knots as he gazes about. Probably part of his therapy. I cross to him and say, Hey, Finnick. He doesn't seem to notice, so I nudge him to get his attention. Finnick, how are you doing? Katniss, he says, gripping my hand, relieved to see a familiar face, I think. Why am we meeting here? I told Coyne I'd bear Mockingjay, but I made her promise to give the other tribute to immunity if the rebels won. In public, so there'll be plenty of witnesses. Oh, good, because I worry about that with Annie, that she'll say something that uh, could be construed as traitorous without knowing it," says Finnick. Annie. Uh Uh-oh, totally forgot her. Don't worry, I took care of it. I give Finnick's hand a squeeze and head straight for the podium at the front of the room. Coyne, who is glancing over her statement, raises her eyebrows at me. I need you to add Annie Cresta to the immunity list, I tell her. The president frowns slightly. Who is that? She's Finnick O'Dears. What? I don't really know what to call her. She's Phoenix's friend. From District 4. Another victor. She was arrested and taken to the capital when the arena blew up. Oh, the mad girl. That's not really necessary. We don't make a habit of punishing anyone that frail. I think of the scene I walked in on this morning. Of Octavia huddled against the wall. Of how Coyne and I must have vastly different definitions of frailty. But I only say... "'No? Well, then it shouldn't be a problem to add, Annie.' "'All right,' says the President, penciling in Annie's name. "'Do you want to be up here with me for the announcement?' I shake my head. "'I didn't think so. Better hurry and lose yourself in the crowd. I'm about to begin.' I make my way back to Finnick. "'Words are another thing not wasted in thirteen. Coin calls the audience to attention and tells them I have consented to be the Mockingjay. Provided the other victors, Peta, Joanna, Abaria and Annie, will be granted full pardons for any damage they do to the rebel cause. In the rumbling of the crowd, I hear the dissent. I suppose no one doubted I would want to be the Mockingjay. So, naming a price, one that spares possible enemies, angers them. I stand indifferent to the hostile looks thrown my way. The President allows a few moments of unrest, and then continues in her brisk fashion. Only now the words coming out of her mouth are news to me. But in return for this unprecedented request, Soldier Everdeen has promised to devote herself to our cause. It follows that any deviance from her mission, in either motive or deed, will be viewed as a break in this agreement. The immunity would be terminated, and the fate of the four victors determined by the law of District 13, as would her own. Thank you. In other words, I step out of line, and we're all dead. Again, Katniss finds herself trapped underneath somebody else's expectations. How's Katniss going to do with all this? She now uh, holds the fate of, I guess I would say, one person that's very important to her, two people that are pretty important to her, and then one person that's not really important to her, and Abaria, but, uh, you know... Katniss sort of felt she belongs as part of the deal anyway, um, which I think is fair. I think that's a a reasonable move to make. Um, All of this now kind of rests on Katniss's shoulders. What do y'all think? Chatterbreak question I think is essentially going to be just that. Katniss has some new freedoms and some new responsibilities. Is Katniss going to be up to the task? What parts is she going to struggle with? What do we know about this character? Um, You know, I want you to take those things. We've talked about, like, prime rules and uh, subprime rules and all that. What do you think in this character of Katniss that we've gotten to know pretty well at this point? What do you think within this character is going to help or hurt her odds of being able to perform as the capital wishes? Sandra says, it's probably going to bring a lot of stress. I think so, and Katniss can deal with stress, but she she usually has some sort of support system around that, right? And usually, uh, it's either her family plus Gale, which she does have here, or it's Peta. And unfortunately, Peta has gone from a point of stability to a point of massive instability because she doesn't know what's happening with him. Um, Pretty devastating. Orly Rose says, "Ugh! In a way, I like these people less than the Capitol. They see what the Capitol has done and ran from it, and now they're being worse to her than even the Capitol. I hate that everyone uses the cold-blooded murder of those she loves to make her into their marionette. That is a question, right? How are they handling this? Is it is it right that they are handling it like this, um, and you no know, are they are they using it or or is it simply the matter of like this is who is available right now, um, because you know frankly I, I think they probably could be more vicious if they were really sort of using uh, the the people that Katniss loves. Uh. I mean, I think she sort of made her... She made her own name and then they attached this face to the name um, and now they want her to connect the name and the face together. That's what they wanted to do and frankly, I think uh, if that's what they want, they could be a lot more vicious about it. Remains to be seen. We shall find out. I will say, um, you know, we talked about who was the, um, uh, we talked about, you know, sometimes there are two sides to things, but sometimes there aren't. Sometimes there is no, yeah, I can see both sides. Um, in this case, it appears that uh, the capital is not, um, it's not entirely unique. Uh, in their poor treatment of some people, and I think that has to be weighed against itself. Um, You know, the Capitol definitely has done this and worse, so overall, I think it still balances out in favor of, okay, if there is a side that deserves some help, it is District 13, but let's not pretend that simply because they're better that they are blameless. There we have it, folks. Hogwart's hippie says I think Katniss will continue to have an, inter- uh, an internal struggle. She is naturally rebellious, so I think that will contribute. The lack of info about PETA is torture, I think she will disagree with the ways of the group as they are similar to the Capitol. Yeah, every time she sees something that that is similar to the Capitol or that she thinks like that's what the Capitol would have done, um, I do think she's going to buck that. Now I will say also that this does put katniss in kind of a a unique position um wherein she has a an enemy that has been defined for so long right when, when something bad happens it's the capital that did it it's the capital's fault um and so now you know it is it is kind of interesting whenever she sees something unfair happening she thinks well that's what the capital would do because i think in her mind every unfair thing is connected to the capital We shall see. We shall see, folks. Uh, Sparkle Love Good says, "Finally home from Satan's fairground. Way too hot for me. If I ever go back, it will be in January." Um, well, I'm curious to know where you were at there, <laughs> Sparkle Love Good. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what place I would describe as Satan's fairground, except maybe like Vegas. Sorry, Van. Van, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey. Oh, duh, yeah, that's right. You were over there, weren't you? Yep. There we go. There we go. <laughs> we're on exactly the same page. All right. All right. With that in mind, folks. <laughs> I don't think it's a real literal place, I think it's a metaphorical hogwartippi. I did do it. It's so funny to have already said the thing and to watch you sort of in real time van kind of react to it Like don't you say it? Don't you do it Sam? And I've already said it, you know 60 seconds ago (laughs) That's the thing I've been unfair to you van, but I maintain Vegas kind of (laughs) wretched All right, all right folks a bit of review Um Today, we have already read chapter four. We're gonna be reading chapters five and six coming up here. Um, All of that tonight on Flying Sidecar. Chapter four. Um, Katniss is here in District 13, uh, having sort of, having looked off uh, across the world and seen what the capital is up to, uh, having seen the destruction of District 12, uh, she's now back, and she has agreed, over quite a bit of this, uh, she has agreed to... to become the Mockingjay. She's agreed on that much. But she does have some demands, of course. Um, the demands include, and primarily include, I would say, that the big important thing is that uh, the rest of... The tributes, the rest of the living tributes, so Finnick um, and Annie, and most importantly, Peta, they are given sort of full pardon. They are protected. Should the should the rebels win this thing, they'll be protected. Um, but now, as of the end of this chapter, going into uh, going into chapter five, the very last things that we hear are President Coin, as she agrees, yes, we shall do this. They shall be protected. Only if Katniss plays her part. If she steps out of line, in essence, all that protection is off and the fate of those four and Katniss herself would be determined by the law of District 13. There it is, folks. <laughs> Mountain Climbing Guy says, I don't listen to enough of this live. Well, it's good to have you here. I hope you're doing well. What up, Nick? How you doing? welcome to nerd squad okay here we go chapter five folks let's do it Chapter 5 Another force to contend with. Another power player who has decided to use me as a piece in her games. Although things never seem to go according to plan. First, there were the game makers, making me their star, and then scrambling to recover from that handful of poisonous berries. Then President Snow, trying to use me to put out the flames of Rebellion, only to have me move to become even more inflammatory. Next, the rebels... Ensnaring me in the metal claw that lifted me from the arena, designating me to be their mocking jay, and then having to recover from the shock that I might not want the wings. And now, coin, with her fists full of precious nukes and her well oiled machine of a district, finding it's even harder to groom a mocking jay than to catch one. But she's been the quickest to determine that I have an agenda of my own, and am therefore not to be trusted. She has been the first to publicly brand me as a threat. I run my fingers through the thick layer of bubbles in my tub. Cleaning me up is just a preliminary step to determining my new look. With my acid-damaged hair, sunburned skin, and ugly scars, the prep team has to make me pretty and then damage, burn, and scar me in a more attractive way. <sighs> Remake her to beauty base zero, Fulvia ordered the first thing this morning. We'll work from there. Beauty Base Zero turns out to be what a person would look like if they stepped out of bed looking flawless, but natural. It means my nails are perfectly shaped, but not polished. My hair soft and shiny, but not styled. My skin smooth and clear, but not painted. Wax the body hair and erase the dark circles, but don't make any noticeable enhancements. I suppose Sina gave them the same instructions the first day I arrived as a tribute in the capital only that was different since i was a contestant as a rebel i thought i would get to look more like myself but it seems a televised rebel has her own standards to live up to after i rinsed the lather from my body i turned to find octavia waiting with a towel she's so altered from the woman i knew in the capital stripped of the gaudy clothing, the heavy makeup, the dyes and jewelry and knickknacks she adorned her hair with. I remember how one day she showed up with bright pink tresses studded with blinking colored lights shaped like mice. She told me she had several mice at home as pets. The thought repulsed me at the time, since we consider mice vermin unless cooked, but perhaps Octavia liked them because they were small, soft, and squeaky. Like her. As she pats me dry, I try to become acquainted with District 13, Octavia. Her real hair turns out to be a nice auburn. Her face is ordinary, but has an undeniable sweetness. She's younger than I thought, maybe early twenties. Devoid of the three-inch decorative nails, her fingers appear almost stubby, and they can't stop trembling. I want to tell her it's okay. That I'll see that Coin never hurts her again. But the multicolored bruises flowering under her green skin only remind me how impotent I am. Flavius, too, appears to be washed out without his purple lipstick and bright clothes. He's managed to get his orange ringlets back in some sort of order, though. It's Vinia who's the least changed. Her aqua hair lies flat instead of in spikes, and you can see the roots growing in gray. However, the tattoos were always her most striking characteristic, and they're as golden and shocking as ever. She comes and takes the towel from Octavia's hands. Katniss is not going to hurt us, she says quietly but firmly to Octavia. Katniss did not even know that we were here. Things will be better now. Octavia gives a slight nod but doesn't dare look me in the eye. It's no simple job getting me back to beauty base zero, even with the elaborate arsenal of products, tools, and gadgets Plutarch had the foresight to bring from the capital. My prep team do pretty well until they have to address the spot on my arm where Joanna dug out the tracker. None of the medical team was focusing on looks when they patched up the gaping hole. Now I have a lumpy, jagged scar that ripples out over a space the size of an apple. Usually, my sleeve covers it, but the way mocking Mockingjay costume is designed, the sleeve stops just above the elbow. It's such a concern that Fulvia and Plutarch are called in to discuss it. I swear, the sight of it triggers Fulvia's gag reflex. For someone who works with a game maker, she's awfully sensitive. But I guess she's used to seeing unpleasant things only on a screen. Everyone knows I've got a scar here, I say sullenly. Knowing it and seeing it are two different things, says Fulvia. It's positively repulsive. Plutarch and I will have to think of something during lunch. It'll be fine, says Plutarch, with a dismissive wave of his hand. Maybe an armband or something. Disgusted, I get dressed so I can head to the dining hall. My prep team huddles in a little group by the door. Are they bringing your food here, I ask. No. No. Zvenia. "'We're supposed to go to a dining hall.' I sigh inwardly as I imagine walking into the dining hall trailed by these three. But people always stare at me anyhow. This will be more of the same. "'I'll show you where it is,' I say. Come on.' The covert glances and quiet murmurs I usually evoke are nothing compared to the reaction brought on by seeing the sight of my bizarre-looking prep team. The gaping mouths, the finger pointing, the exclamations. Just ignore them, I tell my prep team. Eyes downcast with mechanical movements, they follow me through the line, accepting bowls of grayish fish and okra stew and cups of water. We take seats at my table, beside a group from the seam. They show a little more restraint than the people from Thirteen do, although it may just be from embarrassment. Levy, who was my neighbor back in 12, gives a cautious hello to the preps, and Gail's mother, Hazel, who must know about their imprisonment, holds up a spoonful of stew. "'Don't worry,' she says. "'Tastes better than it looks.' But it's Posey, Gail's five-year-old sister, who helps the most. She scoots along the bench to Octavia and touches her skin with a tentative finger. "'You're green. Are you sick?' It's a fashion thing, Posey. Like wearing lipstick, I say. It's meant to be pretty, whispers Octavia, and I can see the tears threatening to spill over her lashes. Posey considers this and says matter-of-factly, I think you'd be pretty in any colour. The tiniest of smiles forms on Octavia's lips. Thank you. If you really want to impress Pose, you'll have to dye yourself bright pink, says Gail, thumping his tray down beside me. That's her favourite colour. Posey giggles and slides back down to her mother. Gail nods at Flavius's ball. I wouldn't let that get too cold. It doesn't improve the consistency. Everyone gets down to eating. The stew doesn't taste bad, but there's a certain sliminess that's hard to get around like you have to swallow every bite three times before it really goes down. Gail, who's not usually much of a talker during meals, makes an effort to keep the conversation going, asking about the makeover. I know it's his attempt at smoothing things over. We argued last night after he'd suggested I'd left Coyne no choice but to counter my demands for the victor's safety with one of her own. Godness, she's run in this district. She can't do that if it seems like she's caving into your will. You mean she can't stand any dissent, even if it's fair? I'd countered. I mean, you put her in a bad position. Making her give Pete and the others immunity when we don't even know what sort of damage they might cause, Gail said. So I should just have gone with the programme and let the other tributes take their chances? Not that it matters anyway, because that's what we're all doing anyway. That was when I'd slammed the door in his face. I hadn't sat with him at breakfast, and when Plutarch had sent him down to training this morning, I'd let him go without a word. I know he only spoke out of concern for me, but I really need him to be on my side, not coins. How can he not know that? After lunch, Gale and I are scheduled to go down to Special Defense to meet Beatty. As we ride the elevator, Gale finally says, ''You're still angry, ''And you're still not sorry?'' I reply. I stand by what I said. You want me to lie about it? No. I want you to rethink it and come up with the right opinion. I'd tell him this, but it just makes him laugh. I have to let it go. There's no point in trying to dictate what Gale thinks. Which, if I'm honest, is one of the reasons I trust him. The special defense level is situated almost as far down as the dungeons where we found the prep team. It's a beehive of rooms, full of computers, labs, research equipment, and testing ranges. When I ask for Beattie, we're directed through the maze until we reach an enormous plate glass window. Inside is the first beautiful thing I've seen in District 13 compound. A replication of a meadow, filled with real trees and flowering pants. It's filled with flowering pants, you guys filled with real trees and flowering plants, and alive with hummingbirds. Beatty sits motionless in a wheelchair at the center of the meadow, watching a spring-green bird hover in midair as it sips nectar from a large orange blossom. His eyes follow the bird as it darts away, and he catches sight of us. He gives a friendly wave for us to join him inside. The air is cool and breathable, not humid and muggy, as I expected. From all sides comes the whir of tiny wings, which I used to confuse with the sound of insects in our woods at home. I have to wonder what sort of fluke allowed such a pleasing place to be built here. Beatty still has the pallor of someone in convalescence, but behind those ill-fitting glasses, his eyes are alight with excitement. are they magnificent? Thirteen has been studying the aerodynamics here for years, forward and backward flight, and speeds up to sixty miles an hour. If I only could build you wings like these, Katniss. I doubt I can manage them, (laughs) Beatie. I laugh. Here one second, gone the next. Can you bring a hummingbird down with an arrow, he asks. I've never tried. Not much meat on them, I answer. No. And you're not one to kill for sport, he says. I bet they'd be hard to shoot down, though. You could snare 'em, him, maybe, Gale says. His face takes on that distant look it wears when he's working something out. Take a net with a very fine mesh, and enclose an area and then leave a mouth of a couple square feet. You could bait the inside with nectar flowers. And while they're feeding, snap the mouth shut. They'd fly away from the noise, but only encounter the far side of the net. Would that work? asks Beatty. I don't know, just an idea. They might outsmart it, says Gale. They might, but you're playing on their natural instinct to flee danger, thinking like your prey. That's where you find their vulnerabilities, says Beatty. I remember something I don't like to think about. In preparation for the quell, I saw a tape where Beatty, who was still a boy, connected two wires that electrocuted a pack of kids who were hunting him. The convulsing bodies, the grotesque expressions. Beatty, in the moments that led up to his victory in those long ago Hunger Games, watched the others die. Not his fault, only self defense. We were all acting only in self defense. Suddenly, I want to leave the Hummingbird room before somebody starts setting up a snare. Beatty, Pootark said you had something for me. Right, I do. Your new bow. He presses a hand control on the arm of his chair and wheels out of the room. As we follow him through the twists and turns of special defense, he explains about the chair. I can walk a little now. It's just that I tire so quickly. It's easier for me to get around this way. How's Finnick doing? He's, he's having concentration problems, I answer. I don't want to say he had a complete mental breakdown. Concentration problems, eh? BD smiles grimly. If you knew what Finnick's been through the last few years, you'd know how remarkable it is he's still with us at all. Tell him I've been working on a new trident for him, though, will you? Something to distract him a little. Distraction seems to be the last thing Finnick needs, but I promise to pass on the message. Four soldiers guard the entrance to the hall, marked Special Weaponry. Checking the schedules printed on our forearms is just a preliminary step. We also have to fingerprint, retinal, and DNA scan, and have to step through special metal detectors. B.D. has to leave his wheelchair outside, although they provide him with another one once we're through security. I find the whole thing bizarre, because I can't imagine anyone raised in District 13 being a threat that the government would have to guard against. Have these precautions been put in place because of another recent influx of immigrants? At the door of the armory, we encounter a second round of identification checks, as if my DNA might have changed in the time it took to walk twenty yards down the hallway. And we are finally allowed to enter the weapons collection. I have to admit, the arsenal takes my breath away. Row upon row of firearms, launchers, explosives, armored vehicles. Of course, the airborne division is housed separately, Beanie tells us. Of course, I say, as if this would be self-evident. I don't know where a simple bow and arrow could possibly find a place in all of this high-tech equipment, but then we come upon a long wall of deadly archery weapons. I've played with a lot of the capital's weapons in training, but none designed for military combat. I focus my attention on a lethal-looking bow that's so loaded down with scopes and gadgetry, I'm certain I can't even lift it, let alone shoot it. Mm, Gale, maybe you'd like to try out a few of these, says Beatty. Seriously, Gale asks. You'll be issued a gun eventually for battle, of course, but if you appear as part of Katniss's team in the Propos, one of these would look a little showier. I-, I thought you might like to try one on that suits you, says Beatty. "'Yeah, I would.' Gale's hands close around the very bow that caught my attention a moment ago, and he hefts it to his shoulder. He points it around the room, peering through the scope. "'That doesn't seem very fair to the deer,' I say. "'Wouldn't be using it on deer, would I?' "'I'll be right back,' says Beatty. He presses a code into a panel, and a small doorway opens. I watch until he's disappeared and the door is shut.' So it'd be easy for you? He not that on people? I ask. I didn't say that. Gil drops the bow to his side. But if I'd had a weapon, I could have stopped what I saw happen in 12. If I'd had a weapon that could have kept you out of the arena, I'd have used it. Me too, I admit. But I don't know what to tell him about the aftermath of killing a person. About how they never leave you. Biddy wheels back in with a tall, black rectangular case, awkwardly positioned between his footrest and his shoulder. He comes to a halt and tilts it toward me. For you. I set the case flat on the top floor and undo the latches along one side. The top opens on silent hinges. Inside the case, on a bed of crushed maroon velvet, lies a stunning black bow. Oh. I whisper in admiration. I lift it carefully into the air to admire the exquisite balance, the elegant design, and the curve of the limbs that somehow suggests the wings of a bird extended in flight. There's something else. I have to hold very still to make sure I'm not imagining it. No, the bow is alive in my hands. I press it against my cheek and feel the slight hum travel through the bones of my face. What's it doing? I ask. It's saying hello, explains Beattie with a grin. It heard your voice. It recognizes my voice, I ask. Only your voice, he tells me. You see, they wanted me to design a bow based purely on looks as part of your costume, you know. But I kept thinking, what a waste. I mean, what if you do need to, to be usable sometime, as, as more than a fashion accessory? So I left the outside simple and Left the inside to in my imagination best explained in practice though you want to try those out we do a target range has already been prepared for us the arrows that bt designed are no less remarkable than the bow between the two i can shoot with accuracy over 100 yards the variety of arrows razor sharp incendiary explosive turn the bow into a multi-purpose weapon Each one is recognizable by a distinctive colored shaft. I have the option to voice override at any time, but have no idea why I would use it. To deactivate the bow's special properties, I only need to tell it, Good night. Then it goes to sleep until the sound of my voice wakes it up again. I'm in good spirits by the time I get back to the prep team, leaving Beattie and Gale behind. I sit patiently through the rest of the paint job and don my costume, which now includes a bloody bandage over the scar in my arm to indicate I've been in a recent combat. Venia affixes my Mockingjay pin over my heart. I take up my bow, the sheath of normal arrows that Beatty made, knowing that they would never let me walk around with loaded ones. Then we're out on the soundstage where I seem to stand for hours while they adjust makeup and lighting and smoke levels. Eventually, the commands coming via the intercom from the invisible people in the mysterious glassed-in booth become fewer and fewer. Fulvia and Plutarch spend more time studying and less time adjusting me. Finally, there's quiet on set. For a full five minutes, I am simply considered. And then Plutarch says... I think that does it." I'm beckoned over to a monitor. They play back the last few minutes of taping, and I watch the woman on the screen. Her body seems larger in stature, more imposing than mine. Her face smudged but sexy, her brows black and drawn in an angle of defiance. Wisps of smoke, suggesting that she has either just been extinguished or is about to burst into flames, rise from her clothes. I do not know who this person is. Finnick, who's been wandering around the set for a few hours, comes up behind me and says, with a hint of his old humor, They'll either want to kiss you, kill you, or be you. Everyone's so excited, so pleased with their work. It's nearly time to break for dinner, but they insist we continue. Tomorrow, we'll focus on speeches and interviews and have me pretend to be in rebel battles. Today, they just want one slogan, just one line that they can work on in a short propo to show to coin. People of Panem, we fight, we dare, we end our hunger for justice. That's the line. I can tell by the way they present it they've spent months, maybe years, working it out, and they are really proud of it. Seems like a mouthful to me, though. And stiff. I can't imagine actually saying it in real life. Unless I was using a capital accent and making fun of it. Like when Gail and I used to imitate Effie Trinket's, May the odds be ever in your favor. But Fulvia is right in my face, describing a battle I've just been in, and how my comrades-in-arms are all dying around me, and how, to rally the living, I must turn to the camera and shout out the line. I hustle back to my place, and the smoke machine kicks in. Someone calls for quiet. The cameras start rolling, and I hear, Action! So I hold my bow over my head, and yell with all the anger I can muster, People of Panem, we fight! We dare. We end our hunger for justice. There's dead silence on the set. It goes on and on. Finally, the intercom crackles, and Hamages acerbic laughter fills the room. He contains himself just long enough to say... And that, my friends, is how a revolution dies. There it is. There it is, folks. Hamish is back. (laughs) Did y'all miss him? There you go. All right. Now, my good, good people, I hope you are well. I'm going to go take my quick five-minute break, and then I shall be back, and we shall read Chapter 6, our final chapter for the evening. Folks, thank you very much for joining me. I will see you in five minutes. The timer will be up on screen. Goodbye. Chapters four and five. In chapter four, we find Katniss um, essentially discovering her prep team. Uh, The prep team has been kept under lock and key, but also punished for, it seems, taking extra food, which is something that they've never been accustomed to, this idea of food being scarce in any way. Uh, But of course, the people of District 13, who have brought them here, well, they've got some very strict rules about food so, the prep team uh, this is uh, Octavia, venia etc um, Flavius Flavius, I believe is one of them as well um, they were brought here by District 13 um, in hopes of kind of adding them to her team possibly even uh, you know, the president may have even thought that kind of punishing them would have been something Katniss would have appreciated because of the part that they played in her experiences in the Capitol. but that's kind of what Gale tells Katniss, um, that this might have been going through the president's mind, because Katniss is in a, a very different mindset about this. Katniss kind of considers them a bit like children. Yes, they participated in their way in The Hunger Games, but they never have known anything else, any other way of life. Um, and uh, they also didn't participate in any of the the violence explicitly. In Katniss's mind, it's like punishing children. Um they simply have lived in such a way that their minds could not process uh, the 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 way that the rest of the the uh, the, the districts kind of experience the games, um, or regular life as we kind of start to see as they are struggling with the food <laughs> uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, Katniss goes ahead and adds on uh, Finnick Odair's. Um, I don't know what to call her, girlfriend, not quite. Even Katniss isn't quite sure what their relationship is precisely, but uh Katniss adds her to the list of demands that they be pardoned essentially if Katniss is to take on this role of the mockingjay and at the very end President Coin, president of District 13, does indeed make this solemn promise before District 13 and everyone else gathered there. The promise is, you know, she she basically agrees to Katniss's demands. Um, most especially that the these these people, I mean, PETA, foremost among them, but also Anabaria, um, uh, Joanna, Annie, these other people, um, will be pardoned. Now, why is that necessary? Well, PETA had a bit of a moment where he came out on TV, and Gail thinks it was to protect Katniss, but uh, PETA came out on TV and said... I'm calling for a ceasefire. Everyone sort of lay down your weapons, which really would mean a surrender for all of the districts, and uh, it would essentially mean that the capital has won. So they're furious. The The rebellion movement is absolutely furious. Um, but President Coyne agrees that uh, he will be pardoned unless Katniss steps out of line. At which point, the immunity would be terminated and the fate of the four victors would be determined by the law of District 13, as would Katniss's. So, uh, as we move on into Chapter 5, Katniss begins to enjoy some of these things that she was promised, some of these things that she demanded as part of agreeing to be the Mockingjay, agreeing to take on that mantle, take on that 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 uh, position of visibility and even some authority. Begins to enjoy some of these things, Um Goes out hunting with Gale, uh, but also begins to experience, once again, being part of someone else's plan. Just being a piece on someone else's board. Um, She is once again prepped by her prep team. They are really having a hard time getting back in. Um, uh, Octavia, especially, is... uh, I mean, she's been traumatized by what happened. Um, I think... That is a that is a reasonable way to put it. Um, but Katniss does her best to try and sort of reacclimate them to, hey, this is what life is like out here. It's going to be stressful, but we can live well like this. Um, as they go off hunting, uh, Katniss has been presented with a new bow designed by Beatty. It's got some special abilities that we're actually going to be able to see a little bit of coming up fairly soon. Uh, and then finally, Katniss is here to film the first Propo. These propaganda films that they are going to use to inspire some hope in the Rebels, um, to show that they are organized and they are active and that Katniss is actively participating in this rebellion. She says the line she's supposed to say, and everything is dead silent. And then, Haymitch comes on over the studio audio and just... Cracking up, and says that my friends is how a revolution dies. Everyone, thank you so much for being here. I'm seeing a lot of bless you's in uh, in a, in response to my sneeze. I appreciate that. Everybody, is this indeed how a rebellion dies, or is Katniss going to be able to muster something more convincing than she has for this particular filming? She just doesn't operate very well when she's told what to do. Let's see if she can figure it out. Chapter 6. The shock of hearing Hamish's voice yesterday, of learning that he was not only functional, but had some measure of control over my life again, enraged me. I left the studio directly and refused to acknowledge his comments from the booth today. Even so, I knew immediately he was right about my performance. It took the whole of this morning for him to convince the others of my limitations, that I can't pull it off. I can't stand in a television studio wearing a costume and makeup in a cloud of fake smoke and rally the districts to victory. It's amazing, really, how long I've survived the cameras. The credit for that, of course, goes to PETA. Alone, I can't be the Mockingjay. We gather around the huge table in command. Coyne and her people, Plutarch, Fulvia, and my prep team, a group from Twelve that includes Haymitch and Gale, but also a few others I can't explain like Levy and Greasy Say. At the last minute, Finnick wheels Beady in, accompanied by Dalton, the cattle expert from Ten. I suppose that Coyne has assembled this strange assortment of people as witnesses to my failure. However, it's Hamish who welcomes everyone, and by his words I understand that they've come at his personal invitation. This is the first time we've been in a room together since I clawed him. I avoid looking at him directly, but I catch a glimpse of his reflection in one shiny control console along the wall. He looks slightly yellow, he's lost a lot of weight, giving him a shrunken appearance. For a second, I'm afraid he's dying. I have to remind myself I don't care. The first thing Hamish does is to show the footage we've just shot. I seem to have reached some new low under Plutarch and Fulvia's guidance. Both my voice and body have a jerky, disjointed quality, like a puppet being manipulated by unseen forces. Alright, Hamage says when it's over. Would anyone like to argue that this is of use to us in winning a war? No one does. Well, that saves some time, so let's all be quiet for a minute. I want everyone to think of one incident where Katniss Everdeen genuinely moved you. Not where you were jealous of her hairstyle or her dress went up in flames or she made a halfway decent shot with an arrow. Not where Peter was making you like her. I want to hear one moment where she made you feel something real. Quiet stretches out. And I'm beginning to think it will never end when Levy speaks up. When she volunteered to take Prim's place at the reaping? Because I'm sure that she thought she was going to die. Very good. Excellent example, says Hamage. He takes a purple marker and writes on a notepad. Volunteered for sister at reaping. Hamage looks around the table. Somebody else. I'm surprised that the next speaker is Boggs, who I think of as a muscular robot that does coin's bidding. Mm. When she sang the song while well, the little girl died. Somewhere in my head, an image surfaces of Boggs with a young boy perched on his hip in the dining hall, I think. Maybe he's not a robot after all. He didn't get choked up at that, right?" says Hamish, writing it down. I cried when she drugged Peter so she could bring him medicine and when she kissed him goodbye, blurts out Octavia. Then she covers her mouth like she's sure this was a bad mistake, but Hamish only nods. Oh, yeah. Drugs Peter to save his life. Very nice. The moments begin to come thick and fast, and in no particular order. When I took Rue in as an ally, extended my hand to chaff on interview night, tried to carry mags, and again and again when I held out those berries that meant different things to different people. Love for PETA, refusal to give in under impossible odds, defiance of the capital's inhumanity. Hamage holds up the notepad. right, so the question is... "'What do all of these have in common?' "'They were cottonesses, says Gale quietly. "'No one told her what to do or say.' "'Unscripted, yes,' says Beattie. "'He reaches over and pats my hand. "'So we should all leave you alone, right?' "'People laugh. "'I even smile a little.' "'Well, that's all very nice, but not very helpful,' says Fulvia peevishly. Unfortunately, her opportunities for being wonderful are rather limited here in Thirteen. So unless you're suggesting we toss her into the middle of combat— That's exactly what I'm suggesting, says Hamish. We put her out in the field and just keep the cameras rolling. But people think she's pregnant, Gale points out. "We'll spread the word she lost the baby from the electrical shock in the arena, Plutarch replies. Very sad. Very unfortunate. The idea of sending me into combat is controversial, but Hamish has a pretty tight case. If I perform well only in real-life circumstances, then into them I should go. Every time we coach uh, or give our lines, the best that we can hope for is okay. It's got to come from her. That's what people are responding to. Even if we're careful, we can't guarantee your safety, says Boggs. She'll be a target for every. I want to go, I break in. I'm no help to the rebels here. And what if you're killed? Asks Coyne. Make sure you get some footage. You can use that anyway, I answer. Fine, says Coyne. But let's take it one step at a time. Find the least dangerous situation that can evoke some spontaneity in you. She walks around command, studying the illuminated district maps that show the ongoing troop positions in the war. Hmm. Take her into eight this afternoon. There was heavy bombing this morning, but the raid seems to have run its course. I want her armed and with a squad of bodyguards. Camera crew on the ground. Hey, Mitch, you'll be airborne and in contact with her. Let's see what happens there. Does anyone have any other comments? Hey, wash your face, says Dalton. Everyone turns to him. She's still a girl. You made her look thirty-five. It seems wrong. Seems like something the Capitol would do. As Coyne adjourns the meeting, Hamish asks her if he can speak to me privately. The others leave except for Gail, who lingers uncertainly by my side. What are you worried about? Hamish asks him. I'm the one who needs a bodyguard. It's okay, I tell Gale, and he goes. Then there's just the hum of the instruments, the purr of the ventilation system. Hamage takes a seat across from me. We're gonna have to work together again. So go ahead, just say it. I think of the snarling, cruel exchange back on the hovercraft, the bitterness that followed. But all I can say is, I can't believe he didn't rescue Peter. I know, he replies. There's a sense of incompleteness. And not because he hasn't apologized, but because we were a team. We had a deal to keep Peter safe. A drunken, unrealistic deal made in the dark of night, but a deal just the same. And in my heart of hearts, I know we both failed. Now you say it, I tell him. I can't believe you let him out of your sight that night, says Hamish. I nod. That's it. I play it over and over in my head. What I could have done to keep him at my side without breaking the alliance. But nothing comes to me. You didn't have a choice. And... Even if I could have made Plutarch stay and rescue him that night, the whole hovercraft would have gone down. We barely got out as it was. I finally meet Hamish's eyes, seam eyes, grey and deep and ringed with circles of sleepless nights. He's not dead yet, Katniss. We're still in the game. I try to say this with optimism, but my voice cracks. Still in and I'm still your mentor. Hamish hey, points his marker at me. When you're on the ground, remember I'm airborne. I'm going to have a better view, so do what I tell you. We'll see, my answer. I return to the remake room and watch the streaks of makeup disappear down the drain as I scrub my face clean. The person in the mirror looks ragged with her uneven skin and tired eyes, but she looks like me. I ripped the armband off, revealing the ugly scar from the tracker. There. That looks like me, too. Since I'll be in a combat zone, BD helps me with the armor Cine designed. A helmet of some interwoven metal that sits close to my head. The material's supple, like fabric, and can be drawn back like a hood, in case I don't want it up full-time. A vest to reinforce the protection over my vital organs. A small white earpiece that attaches to my collar by a wire. B.D. secures a mask to my belt that I don't have to wear unless there's a gas attack. If you see anyone dropping for reasons you can't explain, put it on immediately, he says. Finally, he straps a sheath divided into three cylinders of arrows on my back. Just remember, right side, fire. Left side, explosive. Center, regular. You shouldn't need them, but better safe than sorry bugs shows up to escort me down to the airborne division just as the elevator arrives finnick appears in a state of agitation katniss they won't let me go i told them i'm fine but they won't even let me ride in the hovercraft i take in finnick his bare legs showing between his hospital gown and slippers his tangle of hair the half knotted rope twisted around his fingers the wild look in his eyes and i know any plea on my part will be useless Even I don't think it's a good idea to bring him. So I smack my hand on my forehead and say, Oh, I forgot. It's this stupid concussion. I was supposed to tell you to report to Beatty in Special Weaponry. He's designed a new trident for you. At the word trident, it's as if the old finnick resurfaces. Really? What's it do? I don't know. But if it's anything like my bow and arrows, you're going to love it. You'll need to train with it, though. Right, of course. I guess I'd better get down there. Fennec, I say. Maybe some pants? He looks down at his legs as if noticing his outfit for the first time. Then he whips off his hospital gown, leaving him in just his underwear. Why, do you find this, he strikes a ridiculously provocative pose, Distracting. I can't help laughing because it's funny and it's extra funny because it makes Boggs look so uncomfortable and I'm happy because Finnick actually sounds like the guy I met at the Quarter Quell I'm only human, Odair I get in before the elevator doors close Sorry, I say to Boggs Don't be I thought you handled that well, he says Better than my having to arrest him anyway Yeah, I say I sneak a sidelong glance at him. He's probably in his mid-forties with close-cropped gray hair and blue eyes. Incredible posture. He's spoken out twice today in ways that make me think he would rather be friends than enemies. Maybe I should give him a chance. But he just seems so in step with coin. There's a series of loud clicks. The elevator comes to a slight pause and then begins to move laterally to the left. I go sideways, I ask. Yes, there's a whole network of elevator paths under 13. The answers? This one lies just above the transport spoke to the fifth airlift platform. It's taking us to the hangar. The hangar. The dungeons, special defense. Somewhere food is grown. Power generated, air and water purified. 13's even larger than I thought. Can't take credit for much of it says Boggs. We basically inherited the place. It's been all we can do to keep it running. The clicks resume. We drop down again briefly, just a couple of levels, and the doors open on the hangar. Oh. I let out involuntarily at the sight of the fleet, row after row of different kinds of hovercraft. Did you inherit these too? Some we manufactured, Some were part of the capitol's air force. They've been updated, of course," says Boggs. I feel that twinge of hatred against Thirteen again. So you had all this, and you left the rest of the district's defenses against the capitol? It's not that simple, he shoots back. We were in no position to launch a counterattack until recently. We could barely stay alive. After we'd overthrown and executed the capitol's people, only a handful of us even knew how to pilot. We could have nuked them with missiles, yes, but there's always the larger question. If we engage in that type of war against the capital, will there be any human life left? Sounds like what Peter said. And you all called him a traitor? I counter. Because he called for a ceasefire, says Boggs. You'll notice neither side has launched nuclear weapons. We're working it out the old-fashioned way. Over here, soldier Everdeen he indicates one of the smaller aircraft I'm out the stairs and find it packed with the television crew and equipment everyone else is dressed in 13's dark grey military jumpsuits even Hamish, although he seems unhappy about the snugness of the collar Fulvia Cardew hustles over and makes a sound of frustration when she sees my clean face all that work down the drain I'm not blaming you, Katniss it's just that very few people are born with camera-ready faces like him She snags Gale, who's in a conversation with Plutarch, and spins him toward us. Isn't he handsome? Gale does look striking in the uniform, I guess. But the question just embarrasses us both, given our history. I'm trying to think of a witty comeback when Boggs says brusquely, Well, don't expect us to be too impressed. We just saw Finnick O'Dare in his underwear. I decide to go ahead and like Boggs. There's a warning of the upcoming takeoff, and I strap myself into a seat next to Gale, facing off with Haymitch and Plutarch. We glide through a maze of tunnels that opens out onto a platform. Some sort of elevator device lifts the craft slowly up through the levels. All at once, we're outside in a large field surrounded by woods. When we rise off the platform, we become wrapped in clouds. Now that the flurry of activity leading up to this mission is over, I realize I have no idea what I'm facing on this trip to District 8. In fact, I know very little about the actual state of the war, or what it would take to win it, or what would happen if we did. Plutarch tries to lay it out in simple terms for me. First of all, every district is currently at war with the capital, except two, which has always had a favored relationship with our enemies despite its participation in the Hunger Games. They get more food and better living conditions. After the dark days, and the supposed destruction of Thirteen, District Twelve became the capital's new center of defense, although it's publicly presented as the home of the nation's stone quarries, in the same way that Thirteen was known for graphite mining. District Two not only manufactures weaponry, it trains and even supplies peacekeepers. You mean, some of the peacekeepers are born in two? I ask. I thought they all came from the capital? Plutarch nods. That's what you're supposed to think. And some do come from the capital. But its population could never sustain a force that size. And then there's the problem of recruiting capital raised citizens for a dull life of deprivation in the districts. A 20-year commitment to the peacekeepers. No marriage, no children allowed. (laughs) Some buy into it for the honor of the thing. Others take it as an alternative to punishment. For instance, join the Peacekeepers and your debts are forgiven. Many people are swamped in debt in the capital, but not all of them are fit for active duty. So District 2 is where we turn for additional troops. It's a way for their people to escape poverty and a life in quarries. They're raised with a warrior mindset. You've seen how eager their children are to volunteer to be tributes. Cato and Clove. Brutus and Anabaria. I've seen their eagerness and their bloodlust, too. But all the other districts are on our side, I ask. Yes. Our goal is to take over the districts one by one, ending with District 2, thus cutting off the capital's supply chain. And then, once it's weakened, we can invade the capital itself, says Plutarch. That'll be a whole other type of challenge. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. If we do, when who would be in charge of the government? Gale asks. Everyone, Plutarch tells him. We're going to form a republic where the people of each district and their capital can elect their own representatives to be their voice in a centralized government. <laughs> Don't look so suspicious. It's worked before. Aye, and books, Hamish hey, mutters. In history books, says Plutarch. And if our ancestors could do it, than we can too. Frankly, our ancestors don't seem to have much to brag about. I mean, look at the state they left us in, with the wars and the broken planet. Clearly, they didn't care much about what would happen to the people who came after them. But this Republic idea sounds like an improvement over our current government. And if we lose? If we lose? Plutarch looks out at the clouds, and an ironic smile twists his lips. Then I would expect next year's Hunger Games to be quite unforgettable. That reminds me. He takes a vial from his vest, shakes a few deep violet pills into his hand, and holds them out to us. We name them Nightlock, in your honor. The rebels can't afford for any of us to be captured now, but I promise... It'll be completely painless. I take hold of a capsule, unsure of where to put it. Plutarch taps a spot on my shoulder at the front of my left sleeve. I examine it and find a tiny pocket that both secures and conceals the pill. Even if my hands were tied, I could lean forward and bite it free. Cinna, it seems, has thought of everything. Folks, thank you very much for joining me. For anyone who does not know what the heck this is all about, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories, and if you want to find out more about the channel, most especially the Discord and the list of playlists for all the stuff we've read in the past, including this one, you can find all those links under the Link Tree: Link Tree slash Sidecar Stories. L I N K T R dot e e slash Sidecar Stories. Folks. I have been seeing uh, some support for the idea that we just go ahead and pull the trigger on this new router thing uh, instead of waiting a few months. I tell you what, I am going to explore the options for how best to do that because I, like many of you, do not want to go through Twitch to do it. Not only do they take a massive cut, but they also, I don't need any more money going to Amazon until they sort out some of their labor issues. So, uh, instead, um, let's take a look at this. Uh, I will take a look uh, this week, and then next week I will come back with a solution. If we wanna, if we wanna get something figured out here, um, I'll find some way that we can, you know, we can raise a little bit of uh, cash for this, and then I will put that toward a new router immediately. Um, router slash modem, etc. cetera, um, that kind of stuff. But yeah, as far as I can tell, it's really only going to be about $150, which I mean, only that's, that's different for some people. Uh, I know this, but uh, for where I'm at right now, with the streaming that I do, I think it would be sensible for me to have one, especially because right now, it's not like we've got a decent one that just can't handle what we do here. Uh, my internet goes down all the time. <laughs> so, so uh, no, that might be decent. That might be a good idea. I like that. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Um, Yeah, folks, uh, I will definitely do some exploring. Orly Rose says, ooh, that's not actually as bad as I expected. No, it's not terrible. Um, And frankly, I would do it right now. Uh, The issue is just, you know, I'm uh, working a few jobs and the the intent of that is uh, with Cass in between permanent jobs, she's working right now at a summer camp, but with her not quite sure where she's going to end up uh, starting in the fall. Um, we're just trying to sort of batten down the hatches. We're trying to collect as much as we, as we can, have a little bit left to go on for the necessities come August, September. So, there we go. Traumatized Mortal, excellent. Traumatized Mortal, using the uh, the Playlists button. Um, the Playlists link... Uh, you can find that with the playlist command. Go ahead and just uh, exclamation point, playlists. Um, no spaces in there. Um, Luis says, could someone purchase one as a gift and have one sent to you? Uh, well, Luis, that is definitely possible. Um, uh, I could try, like, I guess put one on, like, a, a wish list, an Amazon wish list. I've got, like, an, I've got my, my list to get, you know what, I will... I will come up with some solutions and I will have them for next week. I'll have them for next Thursday. So, um, for the final part of this, uh, for the final stream of this part of this book, um, yeah, I will have that for next week.